Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Go ahead and grab a Bible, get comfortable, Acts chapter 12. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into God's Word today. Father, we thank you for your Word, and God, we're grateful that you've given us your Word so that we would know what you're saying to us, what you want from us, how we can live according to your way in this world. And so, Lord, I just pray for everyone that is watching and listening today that you would bless and strengthen each one of us so that we can simply just obey you, do what you call us to do, be who you want us to be. We thank you for this time together in your word. And now, Holy Spirit, teach us, guide us through the scriptures, give us conviction, encouragement, and instruction. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going through the book of Acts. And uh, so what what I want to do first is just give you a little bit of a review because, man, it it's a long time between Friday and Wednesday. Many days, uh, many days have gone by already. You may not remember what we talked about, or you might just be jumping into Acts 12 and say, well, where are we in the story? And so sometimes it's like when you walk into a living room and somebody's been watching a movie and it's halfway in and you sit down and you've got 100 questions like, who's that? And why are they saying this? And that's sort of what it's like when you jump into the middle of a book of the Bible, you jump into the middle of a story because it's not just divided by stories and chapters. These chapters are just divisions that were added by those that were translating the Bible somewhere in the 1500s. And so the story that we're following is actually the entire book of Acts. The book of Acts is 30 chapters, or or right about, it's 28 chapters, and it represents about 30 years of history. And so it follows a certain certain map, and there are stories that are told, the, the accounts that we have in the book of Acts are really built upon each other. The, the, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who was a historian and a medical doctor. He's very precise. He's very accurate when he writes. And so there's just a lot of, for us to understand when we're reading it of why we have these specific accounts in the book of Acts. Why are we reading these accounts rather than others? There are so many other things that he could have written about, but by the Holy Spirit, he wrote these accounts for us to have and to be instructed in the days that we're living. This is what God wanted the church to know down through the ages. And so we've been following the book of Acts, and what we need to know is we're here in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 10, what we saw through the house of Cornelius, we saw Peter preach the gospel to in a home of Gentiles, and they received the gospel And as a result of that, they became born again. And this is where the church of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, was opened up. And from that moment on, we are going to see this unfolding of God's heart and what God originally intended of the Gentiles being able to be in the family of God as well. And so we see that in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 11, we see Peter explain his actions to the very suspicious Jerusalem council. They um, automatically are assuming something is wrong because of what Peter has done by preaching to the Gentiles. He explains what happened. 
they rejoice as a result of hearing what God is doing, not only with the Jews, but also with the Gentiles. That's a great response because, by the way, Jesus had already told his disciples that this gospel was to be preached in all the nations. That's Matthew chapter 24. We also see in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus prepared his direct disciples. He said, go make disciples of all nations, of all ethnicities, not just Jews. And he also says to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus had said many times to his disciples that the gospel was not merely intended just for Jews, but it was actually meant to be spread through the Gentile world. Now, they fully couldn't contain that or understand that, so God himself, through the Holy Spirit, led the disciples, the apostles, to open that door to the Gentile world, which was Acts chapter 10, and then in 11, he explains that to the other Jews so that they could rejoice alongside Peter and what Peter had witnessed in the Holy Spirit. And so now, here we come to Acts chapter 12, and what we want to do is just read Acts chapter 12 together, and then I'll make some comments as much as I can for the 30, 45 minutes that we have together. But if you have your Bible, I'm reading the New American Standard 1995 version, and here's what it says in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, this is Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. I mean, wouldn't that just be awesome? I I love reading that because that just is a very powerful passage. An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know what was being done by the angel angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many gathered together and were praying." When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren, and then he left and he went to another place. 
Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and he had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there was spending time. Now he was very angry with the people of uh, Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, this is basically just his assistant, they were asking for peace because of their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John or John Mark, who was also uh, called Mark. Now, there's a lot that is uh, going on here. And so we'll just go through as much as we can. But let's start here, of course, in verse one. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Now, we're talking about uh, Herod Agrippa. So there's several Herods. There's four that are mentioned in the Bible. But uh, Herod the Great was the father of Herod Agrippa. Now, Herod Agrippa had gotten into some trouble, and uh, he had racked up a lot of debt among uh, those, those in Rome. And so he fled, and he was trying to really kind of cause a nationalistic resurgence and gain allies among the Jewish people. And so this is part of what's going on here in the historical account underneath all of this is that he's in trouble, he's in debt to Rome, he's trying to gain allies. And so as a result of that, here we have Christians or what was called the way, and they were like a, a sect of, of Judaism. That was what Rome con considered them primarily at this point. And the Jewish people were now separating themselves from those that were following Jesus, and they had been persecuting them, obviously. And so in order for Herod to gain some allegiance with the Jews, he started to persecute people. He started to do some of the bidding of the Jews using his political power and his authority to do some of the things that they wanted to do, but in some ways could not do. And so he basically has James put to death at this point. Now, there are four different James. There's James that's the brother of Jesus. There's James. There's two different James that are direct disciples of Jesus. And then there's a James that's a father of one of the disciples. Those are the four James that are mentioned. But the James that we see is put to death here in this passage, verse 2, it says, "...he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword." We know that this James was one of the direct disciples of Jesus. In fact, this is the same James that was James and John, and that's mentioned there. I think it's in Mark chapter 10 and verse 39. You'll remember when they're quarreling over who's going to sit on Jesus's right and left, and Jesus asks this very provocative question to both James and John. He says, are you going to drink from the same cup that I drink from? And they both say, yes, believe it or not, that was their response. And he says, will you go through the baptism that I am baptized with? And they both say, yes, without thinking about it, without understanding, they're still thinking of prominence. 
They're not thinking of being a servant. They're not thinking of suffering. They're not thinking of all that Jesus actually is going to go through in order for people to be restored in right relationship with the Father. They're not thinking about Jesus being the suffering servant. They're thinking about Jesus being a conquering king. So when Jesus talks about his cup and his baptism, they're not thinking that that's a cup of suffering. They're not thinking that's a baptism of death. But Jesus asks them deliberately, will you go through these? And when they say yes, he says to them, and so you shall. Well, James here in verse 2 is put to death. That's the same James that Jesus said that to in Mark chapter 10. And so this actually fulfills what Jesus said to both of them, specifically here for James. James did endure the baptism of death. We know that he obviously had a greater resurrection in the Lord. We all shall uh, experience this, those of us that are in the Lord. But it's important for us to remember that the things that Jesus said earlier in the Gospels, as we're, as we're walking through the unfolding story of the book of Acts, the rest of the account of the Bible, that the things that Jesus said, as a matter of fact, did come to pass. And that's what we see as a result of this here in verse 2. Verse 3, it says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, this is Herod, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, Two things, he saw that executing James appeased the Jews and it pleased them. It caused them to like him more. And so this is what he wanted. He wanted to gain more political power. And so he arrested Peter. Peter was obviously an apostle in the church and uh, a great leader. And so he perceived that and, and he had Peter arrested. So Peter here is arrested. He did it, it says right here. Uh, during the um, during the days of the unleavened bread, this is the festival uh, week long festival right after Passover. Why did he do that? He did that because the most amount of people would see the execution of Peter. And if the most amount of people saw the execution of Peter and they saw their leader taking care of what they perceived as a problem, then it would draw the most amount of people to give their allegiance to Herod Agrippa. So he was being very strategic in arresting Peter, not just that he arrested him, but when he arrested him. Verse four, when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now, this is interesting because you're thinking there's four squads of soldiers, okay? We're talking about 16 soldiers Two would be next to him, two would actually guard the gate, and then they would just swap out so they would, he would always have four gar- guards watching him. Can you imagine Peter having four guards watching him 24 hours a day? And they had four, four sets of four guards. I mean, this is incredible. And so here we have this guy who's not leading any kind of revolt. I mean, he's not a zealot of any kind. He hasn't come against anybody. And yet he's got 16 soldiers watching him night and day because Herod is trying to make sure that nothing happens to his prisoner except for what he intends to have happen. And so this is just the vicious nature of this political leader at this time and how he's going about gaining his political power. And so it says, Peter was kept in prison, but listen, prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now, I just want to park right there for a moment because this is something that we can obviously apply to our own lives. We have um, a believer, a leader that's arrested 
And after he's arrested, how does the church respond? The church responds, according to Scripture, that they made fervent prayer to God. Now, it doesn't just say that they prayed. It doesn't just say that they prayed immediately. It says that fervent prayer was being made to God. This description, fervent prayer, it's speaking about the posture of the people of God. Now, here's the thing. We've just got to take these details seriously. The writer is Luke. Luke is very precise. He's very accurate. When he says fervent prayer is being made to God, he does not want us to miss the details. And that really speaks to our hearts about our posture as the church of Jesus Christ and how we need to be when persecution happens, when difficulties come upon us, when the attacks come against the church, whether they be small or great, our posture has got to be a posture of prayer. And we've got to be a people of earnest prayer. We've got to move past superficial prayer. We've got to move past just a kind of a, a, an immediate response of prayer, just sort of this technical response. We ought to pray, but we've got to move into a place of earnest prayer. Earnest prayer is that posture that cannot just be explained. It must be experienced. Sometimes we think of prayer as this thing that we do that is sort of technical. And yes, there is an aspect of prayer where we want to follow what the scriptures say in terms of how we pray. But the reality is, is there's a place of prayer or a posture of prayer that is earnest before God, that is ours, as it were. It, 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 it is beyond a description. It, it just, they summarize what that looked like. They don't give us the technicals. They don't give us the details. They just summarize it by saying it was earnest prayer. I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life where you've prayed earnestly before God, or maybe if you've been a part of the, this church or another church where we have sought God earnestly. But let me tell you, these descriptions of the posture of the people of God, they need to be something in our hearts in today's world. We've got to have this posture. It's, it's where I'm going with Northwest Church. As a church, we've got to have a posture that we pray earnestly. Now, you've got to question your heart. Have I prayed earnestly? Have I been a man or a woman that has postured my heart alongside the church that we would be able to rise up? It's so amazing because today everybody's saying the church needs to rise up. We need to rise up. Let me just tell you, rising up means that we become a people of prayer. There is no way that we are going to stand boldly. We're going to proclaim the gospel fearlessly, be the people that God's called us to be in this day and in this age without being a people of prayer. There is no way. If we don't kneel before God, we will not stand before men. I believe Leonard Ravenhill said that, and it's always going to be the case. For us to be the people of God that stand in the world, but we're not of the world, but we're standing for righteousness, we're standing for Jesus, and we're doing that in compassion and love and clarity. If we're ever really going to do that, and we're going to do that with longevity, we've got to be a people of prayer. They prayed earnestly, we must pray earnestly, and not just reactively, but we must do it proactively. And let me tell you, I believe that, that when you read something like this, and there's this posture for the church to pray earnestly, it, isn't, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. It is because they were a people of prayer. It isn't just a reaction. This must have been their way, and, it, and so we see this accurate description of how they responded, probably because it was normal to them. In verse 6, it says, And that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, 
Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So here you have just this picture. Peter's in the cell. Um, It says that he is asleep. Now, on the night before you're going to be executed, how do you sleep? I mean, how do you have a good night's... Listen, I don't always get a good night's sleep, but Peter here is in a prison. He's got a soldier on his right, a soldier on his left. He's about to be executed, and he's sleeping. This is the same as Jesus sleeping in the boat. There's this storm going on, and Jesus is fast asleep. Now, there's only one way you can have a good night's sleep before the night of your execution, and that is you have peace in God. Let me ask you the question, do you have peace in God? Look at the kind of peace that Peter has, the kind of peace that surpasses our understanding, that it's above and beyond what the world can give to you, what circumstances can give to you. This is the kind of peace that only God can give. He has peace so that he can sleep. He's he's like, hey, look, I'm getting a good night's sleep, whether by life or by death. I'm going to trust myself to the Lord because he's ultimately the one that's responsible for my way in this world, for my life. I've given my life to him, so whatever happens with my life, it's to him. And so Peter is asleep. He's got the guards on his right and left. He's got the guards that are watching over the prison, the prison gate, and he is asleep. I love this picture. It's the same picture of Jesus being asleep in the boat. Verse seven, and behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and the light shone in the cell. And that's the glory of the Lord just shining around in the cell. And he struck Peter's side. This word for struck is the same word that would be used for two people in a fight when someone strikes another one like a a pretty hard blow. It says the angel struck him. I don't know where he hit him, but he hit him in such a way where Peter woke up quickly and he says to him, wake up, get up quickly. And his chains just fell off his hands. I mean, that's just a super, there's a supernatural event that's happening here. There's no way to get around it. The angel said to him, gird yourself, put, put on your sandals, and he did so. In other words, get up, get dressed, and follow me. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9, and he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. In other words, he thought this was a dream. He thought it was a vision. He did not know it was real at this point. Verse 10, when they passed the, the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened for them by itself. Of course it did. Of course it did. It's a door that God opened. Come on, we always spiritualize that. God's going to open a door for you. Literally, God is opening doors for this guy. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. And they went out and went along one street. Immediately the angel departed. Verse 11, Peter came to himself and he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Lots could be said here. First of all, no matter what we see in the natural, God can do something supernaturally to change our circumstances. Number one, God can do anything. We may not know how he's going to do it, but God here has an angel show up. He strikes the side of Peter, tells him to get up, get dressed, and to follow him. His shackles fall to the ground, doors are opening for him, and somehow these guards aren't waking up. Ask me how that happens. I have no idea. All I know is God is able. God can do anything. God can do above and beyond what we can ask, think, hope, or imagine. God is able to do things far beyond our comprehension, and that is exactly what we see in this situation. God is supernatural. God is all-powerful, 
and God is going to work towards his own will. As we follow him, we can trust him. He can move supernaturally, and that's exactly what he does here. So God can do anything. God is supernatural. And at the same time, let me just remind you, they're praying. As we pray, God moves. God can do anything, but as we pray, God will move. Our prayers matter. Now, sometimes we have this idea in the church, and I hear it. I hear people say this stuff, and it, it really drives me crazy. They say, well, prayer comforts, you know, prayer is sort of this comforting presence that we offer to other people. You know, this is what prayer is. We want to offer a comfort to people. So, hey, I'll pray for you because that's what prayer really is. It's not this powerful posture before God. It's sort of more of like a comforting thing. I'll, I'll pray for you. And uh, that prayer in and of itself is supposed to be comforting. Well, maybe prayer is comforting, certainly. I'm not sitting here saying that it's not. But when you read the Bible, okay, I'm just talking about being a Bible guy. I'm talking about being a Bible person. When you read the Bible, there's 500 references to specific prayers that were prayed or, or references to uh, prayer being mentioned or prayer being taught or prayers being prayed. When you read these passages, what you're going to see is there's a person that is crying out, calling out to God, and in that context, God answers them in one way or another. It's not just this, oh, God, make me feel better. It's, God, would you move in power? And God responds. This is what you see in Scripture. And so a lot of the things that we tell people today about prayer, hey, I'll pray for you, and hopefully that'll make you feel better, God moves in prayer. Friends, listen to me carefully. I don't care what people say when they say things like, I, and I've said it before, we say things like, well, prayer isn't about changing God's mind, it's about changing your mind. What? That's not what it shows in Scripture. Maybe your mind will get changed as you pray. Maybe you're not praying the right thing. Maybe you're praying according to your own thoughts or your own desires. And in the process, when you pray, especially as you pray out loud, those words are, are weighed. Those words become accountable. And then as you're saying them, the Holy Spirit will indicate to you what actually needs to be prayed. Sure, our minds can be changed as we pray because our words become accountable and the Holy Spirit will guide us to pray differently. But that is not the purpose of prayer, for us to change our mind. When people say that kind of stuff, that's not good theology. When you read the Bible, and I challenge you to do this, you have people that have a posture before God, they begin to pray, they cry out because they're in need, and as they pray, God responds. I just don't have, I mean, I don't know how else you can look at it, really. And so the word prayer means to make a request. A person that's making a request recognizes you have and I don't. You're the have and I'm the have not. And we're looking up to God and we're saying, you have all power, you have all wisdom, you have all knowledge, you have all authority. I'm in need, I trust in you, I'm depending upon you. That's the posture of prayer is dependence. And so we ask God to do what, what we cannot do. And that, that is literally how we are to live before the Lord in all ways, is we're living dependent upon God. That's what, that's what it takes for us to enter into this place of salvation. You have, I don't. You did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. So we receive salvation. We're in need of a savior. We're also in need of God moving on our behalf as we follow his mission. And so what we see here is the church is praying. So God is able to do anything supernaturally or whatever, but also as the church prays, God moves in power. 
Peter comes to, he recognizes that God has moved. He recognizes that even though man intended for him to die, God had another plan. And let's just say this, we shouldn't fear death. He's in this place where he's one night away from dying. He's going to be executed. He's got no other reason to believe that anything else should happen. He's got four guards around him. And if that's not enough, they change out just so that people don't get too tired. He's got 16 guards that watch over him to make sure that this guy makes it all the way to the finish line of execution. Peter's got no reason to believe anything else is going to happen but God. And so God moves in power. Peter recognizes that. And here we read in verse 11, Peter came to himself and he said, now I know for sure the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and what they were expecting. And verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. So this house of Mary, the mother of, of Mark, or John Mark, John Mark's the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. He also accompanied Paul and Barnabas. Um, a few times we hear about him in the book of Acts. His mom must have had a larger home because it says there were people that were in the home. It says here that she had a courtyard. There was a gate in front of her home. So she must have had a larger home that was recognized by the body of Christ during this time as a place where people would gather. We know that in the early church, many would gather in homes. They didn't have church buildings. The Jews had the temple and they would have synagogues in other places other than Jerusalem. And so there were places for Jews to gather, but the Christians did not have these gathering places. They did not have any structures that were built at this time, and they had homes that they would gather in. This would serve them as the place to gather and to pray and to, as the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 and many other places, they would break bread from house to house and meet together. Sometimes people will say, well, we need to go back to what they did in the book of Acts. Well, I hope not, not entirely. I mean, there's some the attributes or the, the character or the, the awe and the wonder, the dependence, absolutely. But I don't think that's a, a valid reason for us to think that church buildings aren't necessary. I'm thankful that we can have buildings. I'm thankful that we can have these structures that we can build as a house for God's people. There's nothing wrong with that. The Jews had synagogues, so for the church to have buildings where we can gather more people, that's a wonderful thing. Um, certainly, the church is not a building. It's not a structure. But to have those structures as a place of ministry or as a sort of a corporate gathering house, nothing wrong with that. I, I don't really enjoy when people make these extreme comments about how church buildings are wrong or sinful or, um, or a waste of money or, or whatever. I mean, it's it just sort of a strange thing to say those types of things. I, I think I understand what they mean because people can certainly believe the church is a building, um, but that's not what I believe, nor do I know anybody that teaches that. They're just places to house uh, the people of God to gather more people than a few. And so, yes, we should be meeting in homes, uh, but it doesn't mean that, to have, just by the way, to have a home, a home church network that sustains, many of them have not sustained throughout the years. Even the recent ones where people, um, not in the last couple years, but in the last 20 years, where people have started home church networks, a lot of those uh, went into error and falsehood and false theology and false doctrine. A lot of uh, cults came out of some of those things. And so it doesn't, it, it's not better either or, it's just to say that um, the methodology does not somehow mean that the message is better or the way that they're doing it is better. The mission is what's important. 
Are we missional? Are we reaching people for Jesus? Are we reaching the city? Are, are we seeing more people come to Christ and more people get discipled? Let's not lose uh, track of the mission. That's what it's all about. It's, it's not about where we do it. Um, it's not even just about how we do it. It's that is the message still the same? And is the mission still the same? And, and are we moving forward with what Jesus said? And whether we have a building or not, or we meet in homes, that, that is really irrelevant. Uh, but I'm thankful that we can. I'm thankful that in our country and many other countries in the world that we can have these. And so in their time and in their day, they met in homes because the church had just started. This is before 44 AD, and uh, it barely the church was five years old, six years old at this time, maybe seven and so it, uh, it, hadn't, it hadn't gone that far yet. And so anything can be problematic when it's not stewarded properly. Can we just be honest about that? Whether it's a building or anything, um, it can all be stewarded improperly. And so Peter goes to this house, and when he knocked on the door at the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And so here's a couple things that are happening. First, Peter goes there, and he's probably afraid that the soldiers are going to wake up. Herod's going to find out that he's missing, so they're going to come and try to find him. He's probably trying to get in the house as quick as possible. This, this seems to be the case from this passage. And so the servant girl goes to the gate, doesn't answer. They're in the house praying for Peter. I want you to just kind of soak that in for a moment. The answer to their prayers has shown up at their doorstep, and when she sees Peter, she's so excited that she doesn't even open the door, seeing that God has answered their prayers. She goes back to tell the people, and they say, you're out of your mind, and she keeps insisting, but they said it must be his angel. Now, this is just a strange comment. It, it must mean that they believed that angels could look like people, and it definitely means that angels were sort of that normal, uh, or the presence of an angel was somewhat normal, maybe not as normal as, as, as we are, you know, we talk to one another and see one another, obviously, but there was this normalized comment, it must be as angel. So angels would look like humans, and angel appearings happened in the early church. Guess what? They still happen today. It's important for us to recognize that angels are ministering servants of God, and they're sent to minister to heirs of salvation. That's us. They're also sent to minister alongside us. We may not see them. We may not know what they're doing, but the angelic activity is happening whether we see it, discern it, or not. Angels are at work. They're those that serve the Lord and His purposes, and they're at work right now. They think, you're out of your mind. They tell Rhoda, you're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, no, Peter is at the door. And he continued to knock. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. Now, again, they're praying for Peter and God supernaturally releases Peter from prison. Peter goes to this house where they're praying. He's knocking on the door as they're praying for him the answer to their prayer is right in front of their eyes. Would you be amazed? Would you be amazed if as you prayed to God for something in your life or for someone in your life, and then bam, you get a knock on the door? Those are the days that we're coming into. I believe with all of my heart that as the Holy Spirit is poured out on this generation, 
that as we pray, as we become a house of prayer for all the nations, as we become a people of prayer, we have a posture of prayer, we will see God move supernaturally. If anything has happened in this year that is you know, messed with me. Number one, the year has messed with me, but it's also brought me to a place where I feel helpless in and of myself. There's nothing that I can do to change the reality around me. There are things that are going on. I can't change everything. I can't make this happen and I can't make that happen. Now, I'm not saying we're, we're to be inactive, but prayer is the posture of the people of God because we're missional. We're on mission with Jesus. We know who we are. We know who he is. We know what we're about. And we've got to stay focused on that. So as we pray, we will see God move. In the days that we're living, I believe we're going to see this kind of stuff happen. But it's going to happen as we posture ourselves in prayer, as we are dependent upon God. I mean, the very answer to our prayers will be knocking on the door. That's what they experienced. That's what we need to experience because God is at work whether we know it or not. What we want to do is be aware of God's working both in and around our lives as the people of God. They're amazed, it says, but motioning to them, he comes in and he motions to them to be silent, which means he's afraid that they're going to be looking for him. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren, and then he left and went to another place. So he goes to the place where they're praying, he goes to the prayer meeting, and he details to them the testimony, God's supernatural testimony. And they're encouraged, they're strengthened. What would happen to your prayer life after you prayed for something and a person came that very night, explained to you what happened supernaturally by the power of God, and then they had to leave? What would happen to your prayer life? Come on, listen to me. What would happen to your prayer life when you see God move supernaturally? What happens to you? What happens to your heart? What happens to your faith? Your faith begins to rise. Your, I mean, why, how would we not become the people of prayer that God has called us to be if we, if, when we hear these types of testimonies? We, we would absolutely, it would, it would fuel the fire of prayer in our lives. The fires of revival would be fueled by this type of testimony. We need to share the testimony of the Lord. God is at work. God is moving. We know that this is what's happening in their life. Now, when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. They're certainly scared. When Herod searched for him, he had not found him. He examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Roman law was that if you were um, if you were a soldier or you were a guard of a prisoner and somehow you lost that prisoner, that the same penalty that they were going to have happen to them, whatever their consequence or penalty was, if you're the soldier or the guard that lost that prisoner, then you were subject to their punishment. And so basically Herod has these guards executed. And it says right after that, maybe it's by um, fear of, of what's going to be said uh, about him or done to him. Maybe he's concerned about that. It says that he goes down from Judea to Caesarea, and he was spending time there. Verse 20, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace. Uh, history sh shares with us that what basically had happened is Herod had uh, put a stop to the imports and the various trades that were going on during this time, and the, it says right here that 
um, their, their country was fed by the king's country. And so he had put a stop to the trades because he was angry with them. So they sought an audience with him, and they did that through his servant. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, he took a seat on the, on, the, on the rostrum and he began delivering this address. So he's talking to the people, he's giving them a speech. And then they say to him, for whatever reason, the voice of a God is speaking, not of a man. And he doesn't give glory to God. So immediately an angel of the Lord strikes him. Now, sometimes you can read this passage, you can think the angel of the Lord struck him right there and he died right there. But Josephus is a historian during this time, and he actually gives a detailed account that five days of suffering is what happened to King Agrippa. And it says right here that he was eaten by worms. I mean, that's kind of a crazy thought if you think about it. It says um, right here, he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. The angel of the Lord struck him, and he suffered for a couple days after he was struck, and he was eaten by worms. Now, some of the scholars say that these would be um, sort of a, the type of worm that would eat you from the insides, like your intestines, you would suffer greatly, and so that's probably what's being spoken about here. I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about somebody being eaten by worms. We're talking about some kind of uh, infection that's occurred maybe in his intestines, and he has some type of roundworm that has begun to kind of, I mean, it's kind of disgusting, but kind of eaten, eaten his, uh, in, from inside. And so um, I don't know much about how all that works, but five days he suffered. Now, we have to just highlight this. The judgment of the Lord came to this person. Now, I don't know what you believe about the judgment of the Lord, but here's what I want to say about that. Number one, God can judge whomever he wants. That's a fact. God is the king over all the earth. Sometimes people will say, God can't judge anybody. God can't judge anything um, except for, uh, except, uh, I mean, un let me say it to you this way. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, he took death in our place. He took our punishment. That is true. I've, I preach that 100%. Jesus took our punishment. We're living in an age or a dispensation of grace. The king is going to return, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. But during this period of time, that God's not just dealing with us according to the law. The law now, for those who, who are believers, the law is written on our hearts, and we follow him now through the Holy Spirit. The power of God lives in us that we can now live according to the intentions of the law. It is our desire. It is our spirit-born desire for those of us who believe. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to live that perfectly, but it means that we're going to live that honestly. And so for those of us that believe, we're seeking to follow God by the Holy Spirit and also according to His Word. But just because we're in an age of grace and under a dispensation of grace does not mean that God cannot or does not judge people. But I would tell you this, for those that point to scriptures like this and say, see, you better be careful or God will judge you. First of all, King Agrippa, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, Herod here, uh, Herod Agrippa. He's, um, he's a leader of God's people, okay? And that is does not mean that you know, my distant cousin or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa or father, mother, brother, sister is on the same level. God's going to judge things according to his own wisdom, according to his own plan. But in scripture, what we see is God will often bring judgment against his leaders. Now, that's a sobering thing if you're a leader and you're standing in place to govern and you're standing in place to lead. 
God will bring judgment to not just his uh, people that are governing Jewish people or the church. God will bring judgment to whomever he desires for his own purposes. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He knows what needs to happen. We trust him certainly. But God will judge based on his will, and he, he, he will do that. I mean, that's absolutely the case. And so to try to say that God won't judge people uh, because we're in an age uh, or dispensation of grace is not something that I want to say. But I would say that every time or most of the instances where you see this, most of them, not all of them, in the New Testament especially, is where there's a leader of some kind, and there's an obvious purpose for God doing that. And this is an example to... Uh, to the people of that of that day, he did not give glory to God. That's a that's an accurate or that's a precise uh, description that we need to take in. And so it says that he was um, he we know he suffered for several days before he died. And it says here in verse twenty four, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. This is said five or six times by Luke in the book of Acts. Why does he say this? Because he wants us, those who are reading, to know that the word is multiplied, that just because these difficult things happen, just because the church is facing difficulty, persecution does not mean that in those times that the word of the Lord does not grow. In fact, it does grow. He wants us to know that and be encouraged by it. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, verse 25, when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And when we get into Acts 13 tomorrow, it's important that we understand what's being said there. In Acts chapter 11, um, the believers received an offering to take to the church in Jerusalem and uh, as a sor sort of relief. And so they take that. That was their mission. And so we have Saul and Barnabas. They come back from that. Why does it mention that? Because we're going to go into Acts chapter 13 tomorrow. So um, we'll talk more about that then. But let me just, hey, let me just encourage you today with what we've read. God hears our prayers. God answers our prayers. God can do anything supernaturally, powerfully. We may not know how he's going to do it. We may not understand how, how is this going to happen. God can cause shackles to fall off, natural shackles to fall off. We pray, God, let shackles be uh, come off. Let the bondage be broken. Let breakthrough happen. <laughs> we pray that kind of in a spiritually, but God naturally can cause that to happen. He can do anything. And so today, as we close the daily word, as we close our time in the word, let's pray, recognizing that God can do anything. God will move according to his will, but we must have a posture of prayer. And with that said, let's pray and, uh, and close our time. Father, we do thank you today for your word. God, I pray for everyone that's watching or listening. I ask, Lord, for you to encourage our hearts to take up the place of prayer, to have our hearts postured before you, that we would be a people of prayer, that our church would be a house of prayer for all the nations, that we would not back down, but Lord, we would step up and that we would begin to speak up in the place of prayer. It's so... Um, Normal today for people to say, take a stand, but Lord, I pray that we would bow before you in prayer before we ever speak and take a stand before men. Lord, help us to take up that posture, and I thank you, Lord, as we do that. Encourage your people today. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. 
While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.